Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Life Radio, Chico 104.5 and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but I've been a photographer for over 30 years. And so, yes, if a picture tells a thousand words, then I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill, shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 images of the cross with 30 original essays from a wide variety of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishers. Each week we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's essay is The Mystery of the Cross by John H. Armstrong, who is founder and president of Act 3, a ministry for equipping leaders for unity in Christ's mission. He is former pastor and church planter of more than 20 years and is the author of 12 books, He has also authored thousands of magazine, journal, and web-based articles. Besides his writing ministry, Dr. Armstrong is an adjunct professor of evangelism at Wheaton College Graduate School. With that, let us begin with the essay, The Mystery of the Cross. Consistently, the New Testament speaks of the cross of Christ as an offense. More literally, the word means scandal. It would appear that the entirety of the Christian life, and for that matter, all sound theology, should be summarized as the scandal of the cross. This is surely why Paul considered all knowledge to be of nothing in the light of the mystery of the cross. But why? The cross was a Roman torture stake, a place of cruel and horrific death. Yet it became the divinely given word which summed up the entire faith and life of the follower of Christ. Ponder the crux of this amazing revelation. This cross, a source of embarrassment and provocation for all who do not believe the good news of Christ's sacrifice for the world, becomes for those who are called by God the power of God. To the Jews, the cross was a mark of disgrace. Here a man, accursed by God, indeed totally abandoned by God, died in ignominious death. To the Romans, the cross was a symbol of total defeat, a contemptuous display of loathing and complete loss. To the Greek, the cross was a sign of disgust, standing against the perfectibility of the human person. But the Christian sees in the same cross, in a divine mercy, the wisdom, grace, strength, and power of God himself. This is why the Christian delights or boasts in the cross of Jesus alone. 
Here is the mystery of true godliness. What the world ultimately counts as nothing but weakness and foolishness, the Christian sees by divine unveiling as hope. Hope in the face of life's deepest challenges and death's sullen streams. Here at the cross, human pride is finally conquered by divine grace. Here, all human effort to gain redemption by our own effort comes to an abrupt end. Here, the redeemed die to themselves daily and to look at their petty dreams of temporal success. Here, the believer looks and looks and keeps on looking for an entire lifetime. With the hymn writer, the one who looks with real trust in the Son of God will confess, Upon the cross of Jesus... Mine eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders, I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my own worthlessness. Another hymn writer summarizes our only adequate response to the cross of Jesus Christ. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. That ends the essay, The Mystery of the Cross, by John Armstrong, and included in the book, What the Cross Means to Me. There is a poem following this essay by William Penn, which says, No pain, no palm, no thorns, no throne, no gall, no glory, no cross, no crown. The cross image accompanying this essay is the rose. And why the reason for the name? The rose? Well, I have to admit that the color is close enough to pink that back when I first got this image from the photo lab, I was inspired to think of a pink rose. And when contemplating what to title the image, I could not help but think of the rose of Sharon. I always thought it was referring to an actual rose, yet in preparation for this week's episode, I find that it is a deciduous flowering shrub known as the Rose of Sharon. and is a member of the Mallow family, which is distinct from the family Rosacrae. Now, it seems that I am not alone in thinking of it as a rose, as the name's colloquial application has been used as an example of the lack of precision of common names which potentially could cause some confusion. The Rose of Sharon has become a frequently used catchphrase in poetry and lyrics. And since I am an artiste, I will still consider it an actual rose. Why? Because the flowering shrub does not have thorns, and I am attracted to the dichotomy and contrast, to the visual sense, color and symmetry, and the sense of touch, softness, and the olfactory sense. Smells good against the danger and pain of the thorns. And because my original perspective back when I named this images matches well to the poem following this essay, the one I just read, that concludes with no thorns, no throne. I like how he led up to it. No pain, no palm, no thorns, no throne, no cross, no crown. Interesting. No thorns, no throne. The only example that comes to mind out of all the potential analogies I can come up with is 
that everything in life happens for a reason. I know that's a bumper sticker, it's a cliche, but as a example, if my wife had not passed, this cross collection would not have been created. Would I, if I could go back and change that? Yes, I would. But I ask for God's will, not mine be done. And the point is, God could always make good come out of bad. In the situation of Jesus becoming our Savior, he had to go through that Via Della Rosa. He had to go through the trial and the Garden of Gethsemane and the torture on the cross to get the throne and to get the keys of death, hell, and the grave. But in a more practical matter, Jesus did tell his disciples that in the kingdom of heaven, to be ruler of all is to be the servant of all. And that exchange found in Mark 10.38, prompted by the sons of thunder, James and John, Jesus asks, can you drink the cup I drink of? And can you be baptized with the baptism I am to be baptized with? I contend he was referring to the crucifixion and all the pain and torture he endured from the Garden of Gethsemane to the final breath on the cross. And most every disciple did. They all experienced persecution and horrific deaths. All, of course, except the other John, the one Jesus calls the disciple I loved or my beloved, the one we see at the cross with his mother, and the one we see banished on the island of Patmos. And while, yes, his disciples shared in his suffering, and as followers of Jesus, we too should be ready and able to endure whatever for the glory of God and the kingdom of heaven. I have a slightly different take, or I did when I chose the name for this image, and that is because, and through the literal thorns on the crown they shoved into the cranium of our Christ, and figurative thorns, all the sins and evil that Jesus took on and in himself, then we do not have to pay the debt we rightly owe, namely eternal damnation and torture in the afterlife, but get to enjoy the pleasant joy of communion with God here on earth while we yet live. The whole plan intertwined from Eden to Calvary was that Jesus came to take the thorns so we can experience the joy of God's rose. The reason Jesus came is so that we will not have to drink the cup of God's wrath, And Jesus does not ask us to drink the cup of God's wrath with him. That's the point. He asks us to partake in the communion of the body and blood of Jesus. In that, we are covered by his sacrifice and protected from God's wrath. Mark 14, 22-25. Just as the Israelites were during the Passover. Exodus 12. In our churches today, we drink the cup, symbolic of that blood, that was initiated at the Lord's Supper. This shows our oneness with the church and our acceptance of a joined fate, including the persecution needed to further the gospel, Colossians 1.24, and the glorious marriage of the Lamb and the church, Revelation 19.6-10. Those who reject Jesus in the tribulation will feel the full cup of God's wrath as God's judgment rains down on the world, Revelation 6.18. In Greek culture, baptism is a metaphor for being overwhelmed or immersed in something. This is similar to the modern cliche, baptized by fire, used when we mean overwhelmed by challenges from the beginning. Jesus is, in a sense, baptized or immersed in our sins and God's wrath on the cross. But 
This meaning was not common or familiar to the Jews of Jesus' time. At that time, baptism was a sign that one followed the teachings of a specific rabbi or school. In Jesus' ministry, people, and of course his cousin John, the Baptist, people are baptized as a sign of their repentance from sin, and we apply this meaning as well. After the crucifixion and resurrection, the symbol of baptism becomes richer. In our modern time, baptism is a metaphor for dying to sin and rising again in a new life. And with that background, to this image in mind, we see it ties in with today's devotional on the mystery of the cross. Because while the act of sacrifice Jesus chose to allow provides salvation to all, it also provides an example of how we, as followers of Christ, are to live. How we are to live through the intention of continually saying to God, not my will, but yours be done, and to die to oneself daily. But why? How did a deathly torture tool of the Romans become a source of ethereal encouragement for adherence of this new religion? How did something so offensive become such a source of inspiration? Like most topics of study, it helps to go back to the beginning and view these paradigms from the beginning. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, there were only a small percentage of non-Jewish Hebrews involved in the story. There were only a few examples of what are called Gentiles in the early gospel story. One of the most profound is the Roman centurion, who upon watching the crucifixion and the events of that afternoon and Jesus' passing, was quoted as saying, Surely this man was the Son of God. Later in the book of Acts, we read of the Ethiopian eunuch learning about the gospel. But originally, the story of Jesus and his resurrection was a Jewish story that the Hebrew people had to come to grips with. We see a polarity of reactions leading up to and past the crucifixion. Upon Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on a day we now refer to as Palm Sunday, The Bible says the entire population of the city came out to praise, worship, and welcome Jesus into their midst. Then, less than a week later, as large percentage of those Hebrews were demanding the one considered to be the Messiah, not just be executed, but executed by means of the Roman technique of crucifixion. Sure, they were whipped up into a mob by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish priest class, the pinnacle of upper crust running that society. And I believe the priest whipped the mob into a frenzy to secure the type of death for Jesus that would carry with it the greatest stigma of curse and shame. Side note, the type of death prophesied for the Savior could only have happened if the Romans were occupying that land. There was no other way. All the Hebrew or Jewish law provided for was stoning. So for the prophecy to be fulfilled, the Romans had to be the occupying force at that time. Now the religious leaders had seen the rise of the disciples of John the Baptist and of course the crowds that followed Jesus. Think about it. Just the estimate of the amount of people at the miracle of the feeding of the masses with five loaves and two fishes was around 5,000. But many Bible commentators contend that that estimate was of The men in the crowd, meaning the total of the crowd with women and children, was about 20,000 people. These kind of numbers frightened the religious leaders and that popular sects 
like the sect emerging around Jesus, could undermine their authority and, of course, their financial and societal benefits. The Jerusalem crowd welcoming Jesus was, in my opinion, a final straw for the priests who had to neutralize this new sect, to intercept it, and to stop it at its root, which was Jesus. And since the Roman crucifixion carried with it the deepest shame in the Hebrew culture, then not only would Jesus be seen as cursed of God, but also in that anyone else associated with Jesus would also be stigmatized and shunned by the Jewish society. Keep that in mind when we consider how this society heard news that the crucified Jesus had risen from the grave. One thing the Bible tells us is that the priest immediately disseminated misinformation. They spread false information, claiming that the disciples of Jesus stole the dead body to create a false story of the resurrection. This is not hearsay. The Bible actually details them planning this before the resurrection. They wanted Yeshua to be a stumbling block to the wider Jewish society to test their response to his message and ministry. And it worked. Most people were offended at him. But in the end, Yeshua was crucified for the sake of their offenses. As I mentioned, after his death, the cross itself became a scandal of faith. St. Paul in Galatians 5.11 referred to the offense of the cross, which he did not want removed. But what is this offense of the cross? In other words, why is the proclamation of the crucified Messiah a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks? Well, to the Jewish people of the day, the idea that Yeshua had to die a death cursed by the law of Moses is regarded as entirely repugnant. How could the Christ, which that word means Messiah, and supposedly the Savior of the Hebrews and anointed, be cursed? Even after a plethora of prophecies, some like I just mentioned in, in Isaiah, Yeshua was rejected as their Messiah. The concept of Messiah being made sin taking sin upon and in himself, and being made a curse to redeem all from the curse of the law was very offensive to the Jewish people. And yet, it was there in front of them in the scriptures. In Isaiah 53.2, regarding the Jewish religious sensibilities, Yeshua, Isaiah said, simply had no form or comeliness. And from a complete different side of the prism, the message of the cross offended because it reveals the unvarnished truth about our spiritual condition. It can seem frustrating to some that your best efforts are useless before God. The real situation about the human condition is offensive. It hurts our pride to admit that we are twisted, broken, and helpless. The message of the cross is offensive to the human nature of most that seek to justify its own life and goodness. It can be humiliating to admit that our sinful condition is so profound that it took nothing less than the death of a Hebrew man, incarnated, anointed, and blameless, to satisfy God's wrath. The cross implies that we are incapable to save ourselves and lost in sin. These perspectives were new, and let's face it, foreign to the Jew of the day. Most of all of them were Hebrew defined as one who has passed over the other side. Crucifixion 
with Yeshua was the ultimate going over. The history of mankind and God's plan was fulfilled with the cross of Christ. It means, to those that believe, we are now a new creation. And it means our former identity, Jew or male, Gentile or female, or whatever, are inapplicable under the new covenant. The point I'm trying to convey is that the Jew of the time was full of pride about their identity as a descendant of Abraham. For most, it was a barrier to even consider in the slightest any aspect of the message of Jesus. The one cursed by God and shamed by the Gentile occupying force. And more than just pride, the message was offensive and threatening to their worldview. This is why religious leaders like Saul persecuted, tortured, and killed Christians. And why, after his conversion and renaming to Paul, he was persecuted, imprisoned, beat up, and even left for dead by stoning. As I mentioned at the top of this devotional, I am not a theologian or a Bible scholar. I'm simply trying to impart a paradigm that most of us 2,000 years ago are not aware of, which is how scandalous, offensive, and shameful the message of Yeshua was during the early church period to the Jews. And any Jew that converted meant complete disdain and loss of any status in their society or their town or their region. They were no longer able to sit in the gates and be with the councils. It was not a small thing to leave the Jewish faith, to leave their social structure, their family, their friends, to follow and preach the good news of the gospel. Now, as John Armstrong mentioned, the Romans view the cross as a symbol of total defeat. And as an occupying military force, complete submission is something the Romans sought over the people that they ruled. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals and especially insurgents, rebels and revolutionary fighters, guerrilla fighters. They wanted to send a message. It was a contentious display of loathing, contempt, and a symbol of complete loss. One new thing I learned was that the Romans even wanted to rob the crucified from even making their hearts right with their God, meaning their process of death, stringing the victim upright on a cross, prevented them from asking for forgiveness on their knees. Interesting. Now, to the Greeks, which were the other world power alongside the Romans during that era, the whole story was simple foolishness. The Greek mind gloried in the autonomous use of reason to discern a world order of perfection. God was understood as a divine mind and a philosophical construct that gave order and purpose to the universe. The very thought that a creator would require the torture of an innocent man to atone for the sins of others was actually seen as immoral, indecent, and preposterous. To the Greek enlightened mind, the one who seeks objective truth and rational comprehension, the story of Yeshua, yes, the Greeks called him Yeshua as well, but used a slightly different spelling, a similar pronunciation. The story of Yeshua was patently absurd. Christianity claimed to be the eternal, essential truth that came into existence in time. It proclaims itself as the paradox and thus requires an inwardness of faith, which was perceived as foolishness to the Greek culture and incompatible to true understanding. The Christian, however, made up of Jews and Gentiles over time, 
delighted in the cross. As John said, the early Christian church sees the cross in a divine mystery, the wisdom, grace, strength, and power of God himself. And then John Armstrong starts to give us a glimpse into the mystery of true godliness. Most every religion's especially the ones not based in reincarnation, is centered around how a person can get to and achieve the acceptance of a God. But the liberating hope of the gospel is that the entire story of the Bible, the entire story of mankind, from the Garden of Eden to Calvary to the opening of the tomb, is God making a way to come to us, to save us, to restore a right relationship with us. When Adam and Eve fell... The beautiful, unique, and intimate relationship with God was lost. Why? Because God is holy and cannot cohabitate with sin. Therefore, by placing the sin of man on his only son on the cross, the way was open to those who believe to a restored right relationship with us humans. We no longer need something like animal sacrifice or someone, like a priest, to have an immediate and intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Some do not see or understand this paradigm. The world sees this perspective as silliness, foolishness, and even weakness. Yet at the cross, the disdain of the Jews, the view of absurdity by the Greeks and the pride of the Romans, are all conquered by the sanctification, salvation, and spiritual renewal provided by the sacrifice on the cross. All the attempts to be good and self-righteous falls apart in futile despair. And for us who believe, it is the underpinning of our hope. Hope in the midst of the ups and downs of life, sometimes full of grief and pain and loss. At the foot of the cross, we gladly give up the pursuits of prosperity and earthly success. To follow, live up to, and live out the will of our God. To take up our cross daily ready to sacrifice our wants to meet the needs of those God sends us to in frequent divine appointments every day. And the mystery of the cross is that we believers never grow weary of looking to the cross, not like idol worshippers worship an idol, but as a way to stay focused on the meaning and effect the sacrifice made on it. A view of the cross that will be a lifelong focus. John wrapped up his essay by quoting a few hymns to drive home his insights of the mystery of the cross. And the hymn that I like the most would be At the Cross by Isaac Watts. Another hymn I like is On the Cross by Jeff Baker, which I believe is a song. Now, both of which inspires to prayer, to sing various versions of the song entitled The Jesus Prayer, which goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinful one. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. That prayer also has many versions of of a song. Now this, I believe, is the proper posture, staying always humble, never haughty or proud. And we need to always keep the mystery of the cross in our awareness, because there will always be demons Humans, guided by those demons sometimes, or just bitter humans, that will do all they can to distract you from your destiny in God. There will always be some that will try to intercept the message of the cross in your life. In 1 Corinthians 2a, it says, 
the cross is a wisdom that none of the masters of this age have ever known, or they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But this mystery, not the other mysteries of the cross, the most important, yet often missed mystery of the cross, and that is Jesus prayed for those who beat him, spit on him, struck him with a rod, pulled out his beard, whipped him, gambled on his clothes, and most of all, Jesus died praying for those hammering the nails into his arms and feet. As Christians, as followers of Christ, are we not to emulate the Lord, our Savior? So, returning to the last mystery, the one about how the church always grows in times of persecution, how are you, how am I, to react when people make our lives miserable because of our faith? How are we to respond? Well, if I am right about such people, then they are either being manipulated by dark forces or just feeling angst because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their life. Therefore, we should not respond in anger or retribution, but in sympathy and prayer. Obviously, their life took a turn that led them down a dark path. So we should pray for them right then and there. And if you are praying for them under your breath and keeping a focus, it helps you stay in the light, stay in the proper state of mind, in love, asking the Lord to forgive them and to reach them where they are. If you are a Christian, have you been living this mystery? If not, I suggest you meditate on the mystery of the cross and the phrase Jesus said when he passed, it is finished. Why? Because it removes doubt and fear and pain and provides the faith needed to endure every trial, but also be, to be ready to sacrifice whatever you are called to for the kingdom of God. Now, if you are not a Christian, meaning you have yet to accept the incredible sacrifice Jesus made for you, then I suggest contemplate on what Jesus did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible and consider asking God to refine your soul and heal your heart. Ask Jesus to walk with you and fill you with his joy and love today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this week's image, the rose, along with my other verspirations, then check out Magi Cross on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Magi Cross products, hear about other Cross podcasts, or read further meditative musings on the cross through my blog, then log on to magicross.com. That is M-A-J-I-C-R-O-S-S dot com.